Lord, we come before you and we ask that you just anoint this time as we look at your word. Give us, a, give us what you'd have us to study from and understand from this section of scripture and, and what you'd have us to see. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in chapter 3, we saw the, the plans for exterminating the Jews by Haman. And so we're going to continue on from this in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry and came even before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed in sack sackcloth. And in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was so great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and wailing and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So we're going to stop there. Remember this decree that Haman signed was that at the uh, end of the year that they were going to kill all the Jews and the people were to, encouraged to kill all the Jews. And remember, the, the Jews are spread out amongst all 127 provinces, provinces of the uh, Medo-Persian Empire. So this has gone out, this command has gone out to, to kill. Mordecai, when he hears it, he rents his clothes and he puts on sackcloth. And sackcloth is, it's a very rough material. It is coarsely woven, usually they say made out of goat's hair. And if you've ever tried to pet a goat's hair, they, they have very wiry hair for the most part. They're not soft and cuddly oh, like boy. sheep are. It's a little bit like burlap. And so it is not, un, it is not comfortable and it's not meant to be comfortable because you're, you're showing repentance, you're showing, you're showing your sorrow by put, making yourself, as, you're trying to be as physically uncomfortable as you are mentally and, and emotionally uncomfortable. And so this is what he's doing. And ashes show the total de uh, destruction. So usually when somebody puts on sackcloth and ashes, they're sitting around in sackcloth, which is uncomfortable to sit in, and just throwing ashes over their head, showing that they are in total despair and destruction. And in this case, Mordecai is walking around town, you know, wailing and, and crying. And Jews do a very good job of this wailing and crying when they are sad. And especially like in Jesus' day, they had people, when somebody died, you were to wail and mourn. And what they would do, they had people they actually hired to do the wailing and mourning for them. Really? The, you know, they, just to make sure, because the louder the wailing and crying, the more sorrowful you were, you were being. So they had people that, they were really good, loud wailers and moaners. And they would be paid to come to the funeral and wail and moan as loud as they could to make the people look really, really sorrowful. And the Jews have been able to do that for years. It's, they're very emotional people, as many, many people in that area are. They're very emotional in there, and you see their emotions. And it says that he came before the king's gate, but he could not go in. And remember, he, Mordecai is not high up in the rankings, but he's, he has access to the outer courts of the, of, of the, of the uh, king's court, and he also has the inside the wall. So he's usually allowed inside. Mordecai is a Jew, isn't he? He's a Jew. He is uh, Esther's uncle. And so he can't go in because he is mourning. He's not dressed appropriate. And we, we know this kind of stuff. There's places where you can't go if you're not dressed appropriate. And this would include almost any political 
rally inside where they're controlling things. You, if you're not, you know, they're not going to make you be dressed in a tuxedo or anything. But if, if you come in with short shorts and a tank top, they're going to look and say, "No, you're not. <laughs> you're not allowed in here." And and so there's rules. There's rules to come before the king. You can't be dressed in this sackcloth and and mourning. And there's places like that today. Oh, there's still places like yeah. that. There's restaurants like that. Then there's yeah. places such and such and. Your gentlemen's clubs. Yeah. Some of them, you know, you can't walk into if you're in a tank top or shorts mm -hmm. or, sh or sandals. Yeah. You have to be in dress. But even in political, I mean, you're not going to go go to the governor's office or the president's office unless you're dressed correctly. Right. You don't show up in 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 non-professional clothing. You know, you're gonna you're gonna be rejected, and that's and this is so he's here. And then it says in verse three. And every province, wheresoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews. And then we see not just mourning, but fasting and weeping. Okay, they actually go to God to, with their request to, for protection because they know that God is the only one that can help them. And it also says that they, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So there, many of them would, you know, were so sad and distressed that they would put on their sackcloth and throw the ashes. And this is a big deal. This would be like the government saying, we're going to come in and we're going to kill, you know, in America, I don't know what, you know, every Irish person in the country or something, you know, and, and, and anybody who is Irish is going to say, oh, okay, hold it, you know, we've got a problem. And here we've got this. There was a great distress. And we see the people of Israel or the Jews doing what they're supposed to. They turn to God. And God has already been moving. Uh, he's already been moving to get them protected, and they just don't know it yet. Verse 4, so Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it of her. Then was the queen exceedingly grieved, and she sent raiment to Mordecai to take away his sackcloth from him, but he received it not. Okay, so Esther, remember, she, Esther has been told by Mordecai, don't tell your, your, your lineage. And she honored that. Okay, they don't know that she's a Jew. Haman doesn't know that she's a Jew. The king doesn't know that she's a Jew. But she's used to being able to look out the window and see Mordecai in the courts of the, of the, outside the palace. He, he would not have been allowed to go see her. She is, her abode, if you remember from ver chapter 2, is in the harem. That is where she lives. She lives in the harem. And if she goes anywhere, she's, she's going to be surrounded by soldiers and her her servants she and the last thing she's going to be allowed to do even though Mordecai is her uncle but they don't know that he's her uncle so she can't just run up to Mordecai and and give him a hug, family hug or even or talk to talk him to you know she's not allowed to talk to him because nobody knows that they're related and she can't talk to, to men uh, that would be the rules at this time and so she's used to looking out the, out the window, and there's Mordecai, so she gets that strength. And he's been missing, and she sends out to find out what's going on. You know, and she finds out that he's going around in sackcloth and ashes. So her first instinct is, I don't know what's wrong with him, but let me send him, I'm going to send him some clothes. Right. And uh, he rejects them. And so in verse 5, we see, Then called Esther for Hatek, one of the king's chamberlains, and chamberlain is eunuch, you know, only a eunuch is allowed to talk to these uh, wives and concubines of the king so, so that they're not a threat to, their, to the king when they talk to them. And so he sent for him 
whom he had appointed to attend upon her and gave him a commandment or a message to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. And so Hatek went forth to Mordecai and to the, cities of this, uh, into the streets of the city, which was before the king's gate. So she is not able to talk to him. None of, you know, she's got some attendants directly with her, but she can't send them out because they're, they're women as well. So she calls the eunuch and says, hey, I want you to go out and talk to Mordecai and find out what's wrong. Obviously, being in the women's court, she has not read this decree that's been sent out. She is oblivious to it. And it's kind of amazing to me that there isn't some kind of rumors or, or discussion around her about this. But for some reason, she has not heard of this decree to go kill all of her, the Jews. And so she's sending out to Mordecai and saying, find out why. And then it says in verse 7, And Mordecai told him, Hatak, of all that had happened to him, of the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. And he gave him a copy of the writing of the decree, which was given at Sushan, to destroy them, to show it unto Esther, and declare it unto her, and to charge her that she should go into the king to make supplication unto him, and make her request before him and the people. And Hatak came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. So, it's, so Mordecai, Mordecai is talking to Hatak, and he says, he gives him the whole history, okay? I wasn't bowing down to Haman because he, you know, because I wasn't following his laws. I only followed the king's laws and God's laws, and, and Haman is now out to destroy us. He's offered 10,000 talents of silver, which for, for information's sake is about $10 million. <laughs> Okay, so Haman's fairly rich, <laughs> and he's willing to enrich the coffers of the king. Million? Ten million. The, he's offering ten thousand talents of silver. The whole kingdom usually brought in about, from historical records, about seventeen to eighteen thousand talents of silver. So he's talking about giving them a good uh, half, you know, more than half, but less than two thirds of the normal income. For the, for the year. So the king's going to listen to him and say, yeah, I'll take that. You know, I don't know who these Jews are, but hey, I'll take $10 million into my, into my coffer anytime, <laughs> as any government official probably would. If you're offering them more than half of the year's income, they're gonna, you're going to get their attention. And Haman got his attention. And Haman's saying, hey, he's, he's given so much money. You know, if we took all the money that all of us have, we can't, we can't buy our safety. Okay, this is a big deal to Haman because he's looking at it and saying, we can't buy it. We're going to die. And, and he, uh, then, it said he, then he gave her the copy of the decree. So she now is going to be fully aware of this decree. And he says, now is the time to go in to the king. Okay? And we want to look at this. Esther has been married to the king for about five years at this point in the story. All right? About five years that they've been, been married and she's been chosen as king, first queen. First queen, basically. He's got many wives, but she's the first in primary. And right, but didn't she, she kind of replace Vashti? She replaced Vashti. And she won, her, won the king's heart through the beauty contest, and she's replaced Vashti, and they've been married for five years at this point. So she's been the number one queen for five years. 
and Vashti, we don't know what she was deposed, so, and we have, we've talked about the very first week, we don't know if she was executed, uh, confined to the lowest section with the concubines, you know, which I believe she probably was confined because he loved her. You know, he did love her, so I think he can just assigned her and said, I'm not bringing her back, so she would have lived with the concubines for the rest of her life and not been called out. And so he's telling him, go to the king and make supplication to, to him and make a request for, of him for her people. So her lineage is now being revealed. Up until this time, nobody's known what her lineage is. And this is kind of a dangerous place because now Hatak knows about her lineage. Uh, and we don't know if he had nice, quiet, you know, didn't, didn't make a lot of talking or not, but obviously Esther trusted him, so she would not have sent him. And so verse 9 says that Hatak came back to Esther. Verse 10, again Esther spoke unto Hatak and gave him commandment unto Mordecai or, or a charge. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court, who is not called, there is one law of his, to put him to death, except such as to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called to come unto the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai Esther's words. So here's Esther's answer back. Uh, Mordecai, are you sure you understand what you're asking? <laughs> okay. Uh, nobody was allowed to come into the, and it said inner court, okay? And we got to picture this. You, in the palace, you have the courts outside the palace. There's a, a gate, a, a wall, and then you can get in there. And many people could get into that first level. Not just anybody, but many people could get into that first level. When you entered into the main door of the palace, you walked straight into the throne room or the judgment hall. And anybody with a case to make was allowed to get into the outer court, the outer court, the, the, the judgment hall. Now, any, the lowest peasant to, that had a case to bring could, could come in, I want to petition the king, and you could stand in the outer court. Here, Esther's saying, I wouldn't make this discussion in the outer court. She goes, if I go into the inner court, that's his private chambers. You know, this is where business was not really supposed to be done in the inner court, unless the king, unless the king called you to discuss things. But nobody could just come into him and say, hey, this is what, you know, we've got this problem or that problem. They had to initiate it through letters or contact of that, you know, that type. And Esther's saying, hey, if I go in to see him on the inner court and he hasn't called me, I may lose my life. And then she adds this little piece of information. And by the way, I haven't been called for 30 days. And this kind of seems strange to us, but we have to remember men and women in that day lived in separate quarters as far as their living arrangement. And especially a man who had multiple wives, and he would just call the wife he wanted for that night, and she would leave the women's quarters and spend the night with them. But as soon as that night was over, she was to go back to the women's quarters. She would not live, in most cases, with him. And that was true, of, and still is true, of the Bedouin tribes today. The woman does not live in the same tent as the, as the man. And she just goes into him when he wants her and, and leaves when she wants her, and they live separate lives for the, for the most part. And Esther's saying, hey, you know, you're, you're asking me to do something very dangerous. I haven't even, he hasn't called for me. 
And we don't know, did she lose favor? Was the king just too busy to call, you know, call her, not interested? You know, we don't know what has happened over this five-year period. All we know is that she's saying, hey, I haven't even seen him in, seen him in 30 days. And he hasn't, he hasn't called for me. That gives her a place to be fearful. Okay? He hasn't called me in 30 days, and you want me to go walk, into the, walk in and talk to him. And if you picture this, this is going to be a scary thing for Esther to even contemplate. You know, if she was used to seeing him, you know, once or twice a week, it would not have been a big deal. She goes, you know, because you would think, well, I'm his favorite. He, he's been calling me. You know, he loves me enough. I can just walk in. But 30 days without seeing him is a time to say, you know, will he take my head off if I walk in? And this is what she said. This is, and this is the word she sent back to Mordecai. Verse 13, and Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, think not with yourself that you shall escape the king in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if you altogether withhold your peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house shall, not, uh, shall be destroyed, and who knows whether you are come to this kingdom for such a time as this. So one of Kai's answer is back, you know, you, you may or may not die, but if you are silent, God will rise, uh, raise up a deliverer from some other source. And Mordecai understands God's promised. He's promised to protect his people. And his question is to, you know, and then he says, you know, maybe you were put here for just this time. And this is why we say God is already moving in this whole, uh, this whole thing. And he started moving five years earlier to get her in as the favorite wife of the king and put her in a position to have the king's ear. Now, she doesn't know that. And the poor thing to bring out on this, we as Christians so often are put in a place where God says, are you going to open your mouth? Are you going to say something that is to lift up God in a, in a process? Or are we going to be silent? And Mordecai's answer rings every time. If we choose to be silent, God is going to deliver, God is going to rescue somebody from some other, other path but we will not receive any blessing or protection from it. And this rings true every time. We see it over and over all through Christian history. The men would stand up. Maybe they lost their life. Maybe they didn't lose their life. And that is you know, not the issue because God says just step forward. Because sometimes when we step forward, even if we lose our life, great things happen. There, there was a missionary group that went down and witnessed to some Indians and in South America, or tried to, they were a headhunting, vicious headhunting tribe, and they'd given them gifts, they'd given them gifts, they'd given them gifts, and they thought that they were safe to, to go in, so three of the men came in, they landed their airplane on the river, and they were killed. <laughs> and everybody goes, well, this is terrible, a terrible thing to do. And the wives were in distress, but they would not leave, they were kept trying to see how they could witness to the Indians, and then about a year later, the Indians came to them, a couple of them came to them and, and begged them to come with them because the way that the men had died was so steadfast to them and so strong that they knew they had something that they didn't have. And then the wives of these men went into the headhunters' tribe and evangelized. And the tribe went from a vicious headhunting tribe to a Christian tribe. Now, 
you know, when we first look at that, we say, what an awful thing. You know, how could that, <laughs> how could God have allowed these guys that came down there to, to minister to them? But it was a way that he used to bring that whole tribe to him. Could God have done it a different way? Sure he could have. But oftentimes he has done it just this way, where Christians have given up their life and then been touched people of touch. We see that when Stephen died. They're stoning him, and at the very end he goes, looked up into heaven, and I, you know, he says, I see Christ standing at the side of the throne. And he just fell asleep, basically, and, and died in a very peaceful way as they're stoning him with rocks. Okay. But we see this over and over. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they're getting ready to be thrown in the fiery furnace, I love their answer to the king. The king goes, I'm going to, if you don't bow down, I'm going to cast you into the fire, and then whose God can save you from this? And their answer is, our God can save us, but whether he does or whether he doesn't, we will not bow to your idol. And he, they were cast in, and in their case, God rescued them. You know, We've got Daniel you know, being thrown into the lion's den. Why? Because he heard the law that you can't pray, and he prayed anyway. And his answer basically to the king was, you know, and the king goes, can your God deliver? And he goes, my God can deliver me. And again, that attitude of, I'm still going to serve God, whether he saves me or doesn't save me. you got Isaiah, who's, who didn't get saved. He was put into a log and sawn in half. You know, we see this happening over and over again in the scriptures. God can save, and he may or may not, depending on what your testimony needs to be. You've got uh, Elijah, who stands up against the 450 prophets of Baal and says, we're going we're gonna to test God. <laughs> and the fire fell down, burned the, burned the fire, and he told the people to kill the 450 prophets of Baal. You know, he stood. Could he have been... You know, he could have been killed anyway because the queen had not, you know, the king and the queen at that time had not authorized that worship. They were authorizing veil worship. So God sometimes will say stand, and we don't know whether we're to, going to live or die from it, but God gets the glory either way. And here Esther saying, okay, yeah, you know, uh, or Mordecai saying, you know, this may have been the very reason that you were put into the king's palace, you know, the king's and his queen, you know, and he's not, he's not even sure, you know, he's not even sure, because we look at it and it says, you know, who knows whether you are come to this kingdom for such a time as this, you know, we don't know, but Esther, you've got to stand up, because if you don't stand up, when the deliverance comes, your family will be destroyed, if you don't, if you don't speak out, don't think you're going to get away with not speaking out. And this is important for us as Christians. We need to speak. Even if it costs us our life, we need to stand for God and speak for him. Because he needs us to do that because that's the only reason we're here, to speak for him. If he didn't need us to speak for him or he didn't want to use us, as soon as we got saved, we'd be translated right into heaven. But God says, these Christians are sometimes the only Bible people are going to, they're going to look at us and say, how do you live? How do you live for God? And this should be, when we, in our walk, people should see a difference. Are we going to be perfect? Absolutely not. But we should live a life that says, when people look at it and says, this person is different. They handle problems different. They, they handle the temptations different. They handle you know, what, they, what they 
find funny is different. What the you know there should be a distinct di difference between us and the world. Comment is a, when uh, you're at, uh, against some decree or law, or, and you stand up and you look and you see everybody stand up with you. That is a great feeling. But when you stand up by yourself and you know God is with you, that's a great feeling too. Yeah. And you're willing to stand up for your rights on your own, and you see everybody else is still standing. That's when God is smiling, God. Yeah, I've done that. I've had that feeling before, and it's yeah. a strange. It's, it is. It's God smiling. It's a feeling of really great when they everybody stands up united we stand but divided when you stand up for God by yourself I've done that before. usually if you're standing for God nobody's going to stand nobody or very few people will stand with you right because usually when there's that problem you're standing alone you know Shadrach you know Shadrach Meshach and Abednego were standing alone and they would be you know they were in this collection of all the leaders who were bowed down and three people standing you know, that is going to stand out in the crowd. Exactly, yeah. And so, but we see this, it is true that usually when we stand for God, we're going to be standing with very few people. Because God's people are important for him. And there's usually very fewer, fewer than more than we think. Because a lot of times we look, and a lot of these people who claim to be Christians, when it comes down to standing for God or not standing for God, they're going to follow the crowd. Because a lot of them aren't saved in the first place. You know, because Jesus said, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And they list a whole bunch of things. I cast out demons. I, I fed the sick. I clothed the, the, the people without the naked. I, you know, all these things. I cast out demons. And That's God's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And this is why we need to be able to see we have a changed life. And it's not us who changes it. And I keep bringing that out over and over again. It's not us that change that life. It's God who gives us a new life. It's him that has changed who we are because it is only he that can. We as human beings are sinners and we cannot live a righteous life in our own strength. We just can't. The flesh doesn't, won't allow it unless it is crucified and God lives through us. And even then the, the flesh is going to try to trip us up and and keep us from going anywhere and then Satan will also send some demons along just to tempt us and everything and the world tempts us and uh, we've got to be careful it's important it's important for us to take stands for God and even if we are all alone and this is this is something that's important and we see this in the scripture over and over and as much as I like the fact that we're in a republic and we can vote for our presidents unfortunately historically the majority is almost always wrong. <laughs> Biblically, we look in, and the majority is almost always wrong when they go forward. And I can't really think of any in the Bible where the majority was right, and very few incidences in history where the majority is right. We see this, you know, that God has a standard that we need to live up to, and we need to live that standard and be holy and be righteous, but we can only do that through His strength and His power. And it is very critical that we understand that, and it is through Christ only. And here Esther is being said, get ready to stand. Get ready to stand. And she's going to basically be standing alone because she's got to do something very heroic in the first place, and that's just walk into his presence. And that's going to be something that's scary for her. She hasn't been called in to see him for 30, 30 days, and she's going to be putting her life, literally in her case, on the line.
And we see this all through the Bible where God sends somebody to be on heroic and put their life on the line. In Genesis 37, we read about Joseph being sold into slavery. Okay? For all practical purposes, he's dead. Because you don't get out of being a slave. And he's sent down to Potiphar. Okay, and we know his story. He, he goes along and he gets promoted in Potiphar's house and he's running Potiphar's house. And the original cougar in the, mentioned in the Bible get, puts her eyes on him and says, you know, come sleep with me. And he does what every red-blooded young man would say. He said, no. <laughs> and of course, I'm making that facetiously. You know, <laughs> the flesh would have said, oh, great, yeah, no problem. Yeah, but he honors God and says, no, I can't do this because I can't sin against God and my master. And she pursues him and pursues him. And one day arranges to be alone with him in the house and literally gets aggressive with him and, you know, and grabs hold of him. And then he leaves his coat and runs off. And then she, embarrassed, you know, screams rape. This guy who's been sold into slavery, looking like, finally looking like everything's going his way, gets sent into prison. See this over and over and over again, how God moves in the person's life and makes them stand alone. We think of Gideon. Gideon, and Gideon was threshing the wheat in the wine press because the Midianites kept coming in and stealing all the all the harvest from the Jews. And God calls him and says, hey, you're a mighty man of valor. I want you to go destroy the, the, the idol of Baal. And he goes, uh, who are you talking to, me? Right. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm here hiding in this thing because I'm afraid of people and you're telling me to go destroy the, this idol. And then later on, he tells him to go fight the Midianites with 300 men, okay? Again, standing up basically alone. And we see this again through the Bible. We see Daniel standing up on multiple occasions. You know, when he's first taken in as this, uh, into Babylon, he's going, he goes to the leader and goes, we don't want this special food. We want to eat a diet that God allows. You know, and the guy's answer back to him was, well, you know, hey, you know, it's my head. If you guys look, don't look as healthy as the rest of these guys, you know, you know I'm not going to put that in. And they, go, and they go, test us. Or actually, what Daniel was saying is, test God. And God honored him, and they looked healthier and, and stronger and plumper, as it says, and, and they stood alone. And I just bring out all these points, you know, and these aren't all the stories in the Bible, obviously. Right. There's probably there's so hundreds of places in there where so people stand alone. make it into the Bible. Oh, yeah, and there's the people. And this is one of the reasons I tell people, you know, it's good to read the biographies of some of these great leaders of the church and the great leaders and, and missionaries because we see the same thing we see in the Bible. Stand up for God and miracles happen. Here we are with Esther. Mordecai saying, it's time. It's time for you to stand. It's time for you to reveal who you are. And her answer back to his famous, in, famous lines in verse 15, then Esther bade them to return into Mordecai with this answer. Go gather all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast you for me for neither, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And so I will go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. Okay. So, and she's very specific on this fasting on this one. She wants them to fast night and day. 
And we may not realize why she said that, but for the Jew, a fast, you could fast for many, many days because you just fasted during the daylight hours. <laughs> so you could eat breakfast if you got up early, <laughs> before the sun came up. And when the sun went down, you could eat dinner. <laughs> so you really weren't missing a whole lot when you fasted. You just missed your midday meal, which was usually the big, the big meal for them. So in her case, she's saying, I want, I want a full fast. We're going we're gonna to go three days without eating. And, they sh and she mentioned drinking as well here. So, so that's a long time to go without any drinking as well. So, but she's saying, I want God to be on our side. Now, she didn't say God on this, but really she's saying, you, with your fasting, you're supposed to be also praying. Mm -hmm. Because you're, so he, she's saying, go, let's go to God. Let's make sure God is on our side. And she said, and while you're doing that out there, myself and my maids, and we know that she had maids given to her right from the very beginning that took care of her, are going to fast as well. And then the famous statement, if I perish, I perish. And this is a very important statement because we all need to be that way. When God tells us to do something, we need to get to the point where Okay, God, this is scary. It's you may, maybe even dangerous. But if I perish, I perish. And for a Christian, this is a good thing. If we perish, we go to God. And that's why God in, in Psalm says, precious in his sight is the death of his saints. Because if we die, we're, in his, we're immediately in his presence. And it also shows that we have stood up for him. And that is what he's looking for, people who are willing to stand. Well, Whether we get it or not. She would have then been a martyr. She would have been a martyr. She'd have been the first one. And, you know, mm -hmm. But then that would have been the end of the story, obviously. But You probably know the verse, chapter, and scripture uh, book of uh, if God stands for us, no one can stand against us. If God is with, for us, who can be against us? Yeah, I love that. I like that. Yeah. And, th and that's very important because if we are standing in God and doing what he wants, it's not a guarantee that we're going to live or, or be even, even be successful. But we will say something and do something that God is going to honor and take pleasure in. And there's the history, the Bible is full of instances where people have stood for God and lived, and it's full of instances where people have stood for God and died. The point is, we do it for God. And God never promises us that we're going to be successful. He never promises us that we will live when we go through these things. He only promises us that he will be with us. And he promises us that he will give us the grace to go through whatever we have to go through. And this is the important thing that we look at. Uh, one, of Annie, one of Annie's favorite stories is, is all about uh, the hiding place and all that happens to to them and their family. Many of their family died. Many of their, a couple of, some of their family lived. And, but God was always with them. He gave them, the, gave them the grace to get through. They hid Jews for a long time and then got caught. And they were sent to the concentration camps with them. And one thing many people don't realize is a lot of Christians went to the concentration camps with the Jews because they would not, you know, go against the Jews and they were picked up. And so they were sent to camps as well. Not at the six million mark that the Jews were, but they, they went to the camps and they were killed. They were killed just, they as, were well. Killed just as well. And we see that they over and over. Than the Jews. No. They, 
Now, once you were in the concentration camp, you weren't any different than you were, you, were you, you, you were an enemy of the state. And the concentration camps were called re-education camps originally, and they were designed was to try to try to make people think differently. You know, and if it didn't work, they killed them. And for most Jews, it didn't work. For most Christians, it didn't work. And so we see this standing up for God. And it's very, very critical. And, and people like to make fun of Christians because we live differently. You know, a uh, man named John Hyde, or he was called Praying Hyde, used to just, he had ran orphanages and he never had enough money, so he prayed every morning for the food for the kids and the money to come in. And you read his book, and it's a wonderful book because great things happened when he prayed. And we see this. There was a school in, a school in, uh, in England that used to send out their, their trained pastors, and they go, okay, you're going on a mission trip, and you cannot say that you need money. And they didn't give them any money to go out with, and they wanted them to go rent halls and, and do evangelistic activities, but they couldn't tell anybody they needed money. All they could do is pray for it. And the story is replete with all these guys that came in and rented great big halls and towns because as they were talking to somebody, they'd lead somebody to the Lord and he'd rent the hall for them or, or give them the money to do this thing and, and people would feed them. God will stand up for us when we stand for him. And if he's not there, then, then that's what he will, his pleasure is to make us suffer a little bit. That's, that's what we'll do. We see John the Revelator in Revelation being sent to Patmos, criminally insane colony for the most part, a violent criminal insane. And the, the goal was for him to die there, basically. It's like, go to this island and you know, live because you're not insane and you're not willing to kill. Because he had tried boiling him in oil. They had tried poisoning him, and he didn't die. God protected him, so they sent him to this island to hope that he died there. And in his old age, he was sent, sent off the island. But God protected him. But we see Paul being executed in Rome. We see Peter being crucified. We see uh, Thomas being, being run through with, with lances in India. Uh, we see all these people who die violent deaths in the, in, of the apostles. But to this day, in India, if you go to India, Thomas is the, the hero of Christianity it's the one that's called Doubting Thomas in our, in our, he went to India and because he gave his life, he is the, there, he is the founder of the Christian church in India. And he's revered in India because he brought the gospel to India. So we see how God uses, even in death, can use people. And that's why I talk about Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a very hard book to read because it's fairly graphic. But it talks about martyrs all over the place and people watching and seeing that they died with such dignity that people were going, I want what they have. Not knowing what it was they have, but now that they see it and they go, okay, this was, they were, their charge was Christianity. I want to go find out about Christianity. Many years in my time, I, I would be just living Christ in, in the, in the envir work environment and, and very stressful environment of restaurants and people would see after a very hard, hectic day, and then go, how did you stay calm? How were you peaceful? Glad you asked. Let me tell you about God. Let me tell you about Jesus and give them the gospel. But it was something that stood out. You're not like the rest of us. You didn't, you didn't get frazzled by all of this. We, sometimes the simplest things that we do in our walk will grab people's attention. And when we identify ourselves as Christian to people, people watch us. 
Okay, because they know that Christianity is something different from what is supposed to be something different from what they're walking. And they're going to look and say, does this person have something different in their life? Are they somebody that I would like to have? Do they have something I want to have? And the sad thing is many people who claim to be Christians don't have anything different to show them. Many of them aren't even Christians. Because my, my follow-up, whenever somebody tells me I'm a Christian, I like to find out what does that mean to them. They're content with the lot that they have. That's a good sign that you're a Christian. Because non-Christians are never content for long. Right. They'll, be, they'll buy that new car and they'll be content with it. You know, you know, it's a wonderful car. It's got the new smell, no scratches. First time they get a scratch on that car and then all of a sudden their whole attitude about that car changes. You know, they, they'll buy their new set of clothes and they'll be content for a day or two until the newness wears off or they see somebody else in the same outfit. You know, this is the contentment they have. It's short-lived. And Paul says, I have learned to be content in much and with little. And we need to learn to be content because that is one of the strongest signs of a Christian. They're content because they know God is in control. I don't have to worry when bad things happen to me because God is in control. And he promises that all things work together for good. So I just look at it and say, okay, God, I'm waiting to see what good is coming out of this. And again, I, as I've said many times, sometimes that good is not necessarily for us. It may be for somebody watching us. When all hell's breaking loose in our life and we stay content and we stay focused on God, people look at that and say, wow, I'd have committed suicide or I'd have been on a drunk for, for a week if all that had happened to me. And God is saying, thank you. You know, and this is important. I don't know how people get through life without God. And the point is, they really don't. That is why there's so much drug use and alcohol use and fornication and adultery, because they're not handling the pressure that happens to them and suicides. Because they're not handling what's going on because they don't have the hope. They don't, they don't have the hope that somebody is in control. And this is important for us. God is in control. No power can touch us if God doesn't allow it. And the book of Job is the perfect example. Now, have you considered my servant Job? Of course I have, but you've got a hedge around him. I can't touch him. Okay, you can. And he had certain boundaries that he could only do. And God said, see, he still loves me. Well, yeah, what, but if I do this, yeah. okay, you can try that. And it's amazing what God will allow Satan to try to shake us up. But you know, for us, it is a proof of who and what we believe. Because God is saying, I, I know that I've taught them this, and now we're going to see if they truly believe it. And again, it's not for him to see, because he knows whether we believe it or not. It's to prove whether we, it's to tell us whether we believe it or not. Because the most embarrassing thing to do is fall in a place where you think you were really strong and thought you understood God, and then you go to God and say, God, I am so sorry. You know, help me learn this better. And without those tests, we would never know that we didn't truly believe. And these tests will come our way and, and shake us up and or strengthen us whichever way, whichever way we're ready to go. And sometimes it's just a test to say, do you truly believe? Do you really believe that I'm in control? Do you really believe that all things work together for good? Do you really believe that you're my child and I have good, good things for you? And we go through the trial and we say, yes, God, I believe. I don't understand it right now, but I believe. And I'm going to hold on. And I'm believing that something good, something good will happen from this. And God says, oh, this is my child. I'm so blessed by it. And you won, you won, the, you won the temptation. 
And when we fail, he goes, let me give you the hug and you know, wipe, off your, wipe off the scrapes and we'll treat, treat the scrapes and we'll pick you back up. That's what we do with our kids when they fail. You know, and we don't, unless you're a really poor parent, you're not running up to your kid, you stupid kid, how could you have, how could you have failed that? Failed that? You know, no, we're, oh, you won't believe how many parents I've oh, heard say that. Oh, believe me, I know, but that's not a good parent. That's not the way it's supposed to be. A parent's going to run up to their kid and say, you know, you know let's, let's wipe off your, you know, your scrapes. Let's, let's treat them. You know, what did you learn from this? How can you do better the next time? And let's, let's get back up because that's good parenting. And that's the way God is with us. He runs over to us and says, okay, let's pick you up. Are you okay? You know, let's, let's evaluate this and get you ready for the next time that you do this. And I do understand there's a lot of bad parents out there that criticize their kids and tear them apart. With this, she's willing to die. If I perish, I perish. Because she's also, she's agreeing with Mordecai, maybe I was here, put here for just this reason. She's in a position where she should be able to have the king's ear to save her people. And she's willing to do this. She's going, well, you're right, Mordecai, maybe this is why I'm here. And I'm going to go ahead and step out in faith and do this. And if, if the king decides to take my head off, then deliverance is still going to come from some, so some other place. But, but you and the rest of the Jews go and fast and pray for me. Go pray for me. And then I will go. Yep. Me and my maids are going to pray. You and your guys are pray. So I'll pray for three days, and then, and then I'll go in. Yep. Let, let's yeah. do this in all right, let's close and pray here. The other guy could offer probably a bunch of In this case, she has his love for her that she can offer rather than than money. Uh, and basically, we're going to see how it all works out. As if you all know the story, but we see how God works this out to to deliver her people. So, right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank for the opportunity to look at this, and we ask that. You give us the strength to take up any challenges you put before us in our life and that you will guide and lead us as we go forward in all this. In your son's precious name, amen.